0: Back in the Westerns, when they would shoot, you know, um, movies, uh, they would have a simple way for the viewers to know whether the uh, cowboy was a good guy or the bad guy. And he would wear a white hat if he was a good guy, and he would wear a black hat if he was a bad guy. Uh, Eventually, they decided to make the uh, series more sophisticated by introducing grey characters, right? Um, And so, you know, I even wear rings, black and white, to remind me of the the duality of this Um, but uh, this became very popular in hacker subculture. Black hat hackers would, you know, break systems in order to enrich themselves. White hat hackers might, you know, do penetration tests in order to see if the system was foolproof and then inform the organization itself. And a gray hat hacker might be someone who hunts for bounties and even holds information hostage with the intention of doing something good for the masses, for example.
1: Hi, my name is Stuart Alsop and this is my podcast, Crazy Wisdom, where I interview creative people about how they work with and manage the stress that is inherent in creative work. What I've realized over the past 10 years of my research is that anybody who is creating something of value that is significantly different from what has come before is considered crazy. Most of us have a fear, an ingrained fear of going crazy. Uh, So what I'm saying is grab onto that fear, realize that it's there and just go with it because the problems we're gonna be facing over the next 20 years require crazy people in order to solve them. Today I interviewed Michael Gaznoria, the co-founder of the Truth Cartel, a marketing agency that helps cryptocurrency startups find their voice and express that voice to the right people in an integral way. What I really loved about this conversation with Michael was that he stresses that basically you have to start with your philosophy, you have to start with your purpose, you have to start for why you're here and what you're doing, and then everything else kind of comes downstream from that. So you start with your philosophy, and that defines your strategy, which then defines your tactics. Uh, really valuable wisdom in this episode. I think you'll enjoy it a lot. If you do, please find us on iTunes and uh, for by searching for Crazy Wisdom and hit the subscribe button. Have a great day. Thank you for listening. My name is Michael Guestwork.
0: Uh, I am, uh, broadly speaking, trying to be a full stack individual. Uh, so, for me, I'm focusing a lot on having adventures, um, doing a little travel, um, on sort of improving body and mind, so trying to stay healthy and, and uh, doing a lot of meditation and reading. Uh, I'm, my community is really important to me, so I spend a lot of time hosting events, planning things with people whom I truly love. And who hold me to integrity, Mm -hmm. which I really appreciate. And uh, professionally, I run a marketing agency called Truth Cartel. Um, It's sort of an expression of everything I ever learned in the worlds of marketing and media and uh, content. And uh, we've put it together to primarily focus on crypto. So we've been doing about 10 months. Uh, It was the avenue by which I got myself out of massive, massive debt. You can go into that. Crypto was or Truth Uh, Cartel? Truth Cartel was, yeah. Um but after sort of getting out of debt, now I have the the great privilege of thinking about what else I want to do with it. And so we've kind of iterated on what it's about cool. since then. Uh, and then the largest thing I would say I'm focused on right now is you know sort of imp- improving my life in terms of my integrity with my values. I love that name. Can you talk
1: more about like the like? Certainly.
0: Yeah. Sure enough. Um, so, you know, obviously part of it is uh, it was a domain that was available as .com. <laughs> um, but the true story of it is, um, you know, perhaps a little bit deeper. I am most interested in philosophy and psychology. Everything else is considered downstream. Um, and so when it comes to uh, a startup, what is a startup? A startup, I would say, is an expression of a philosophy put to work. Right, mm-hmm. and then what is uh, marketing? Well, I would say marketing is psychology applied to work. Mm-hmm. Right, and uh, you know I've been in corporate advertising and I've done sort of product marketing and stuff like that. And I remember feeling a little bit during the time that it was just kind of marketing BS. You know, we were we were at AOL for a time, and we were managing these million dollar campaigns like the Samsung Galaxy S two or something. And it just felt to me like we had the superpower, the ability to focus a laser, people's attention to things. And we were focusing that laser on some pretty mundane crap. Yeah. And so this agency is designed to um, you know, distribute things that we truly believe, beliefs that we believe. Yeah? Um, and so I think that uh, you know, marketing can be this sort of empowering factor for uh, behavioral change. Crypto also is sort of an economic layer to behavioral change. And so we, you know, got into the industry that where both of those are together and started um, effectively helping people um, distribute their beliefs. Maybe it's a better way of paying creatives. Maybe it's a way to do a, you know, really expressive art project at Burning Man. We worked with one of the Burning Man organizations. Um, maybe it's a way of, um, you know... Doing something with habitat conservation, or energy distribution, or financial inclusion. So we try to work with projects that are sort of purpose aligned, where the founders are of high integrity, um, where we have a sense of urgency that this needs to happen now. And with people with whom we can communicate extraordinarily transparently, around setting expectations, around working together, and so on. So um, yeah, I think of it as a belief distribution agency. We just happen to provide marketing. Um, And with any capital that we sort of amass, we try to do spin off projects that are revenue producing. So a small media business, a small e-commerce business, eventually a small SaaS product. Um, And the whole idea is to have a place where we can um, amass great talent, and not just people who are very talented, but also high integrity, um, capital, which we can use to sort of move mountains one way or the other, um, building products, investing in cool startups. Um, and where we have some degree of influence over attention, um, and if we can sort of divert attention to the right things, I anticipate we can make it a slightly better place. Mm-hmm. So, that's so cool. this,
1: uh, what came to mind when you were talking there was uh, what? How do you find if somebody is high integrity or not?
0: Sure, um, a conversation is a good way to do it. Yeah. Uh, we tend to lean into vulnerability. Uh, we ask each other about our stories. Um, I learn more about what it is they do and why they do it. Um, you know I am not shy to ask them uh, whether they are after fame or money or power uh, and usually one of those stands out a little bit and it's certainly not a terrible thing for that to be the case. Uh-huh. It's just good to know uh-huh. um, and it also has a little bit to do with what sort of tactics they're looking to have uh, applied to their business. Mm-hmm. Um, you know I've been in the murkiest of moral depths when I had to survive you know backpacking across China trying to make a business out of nothing mm-hmm. um, and I've also sort of, that Ivory Tower, of being an editor, and, and saying no to pieces that had even the semblance of PR. Mm-hmm. Um, so where they are on the moral spectrum of the tactics that they're interested in is definitely a good indicator as well.
1: And that's a huge one too, because when you're trying to do marketing, particularly for people who don't know how to do it, it's like yeah. anything that they, anything they can get attention, they want anything that certainly. can get attention.
0: It's certainly easy to do it on the cheap, um, if you're willing to sacrifice some integrity to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, And some clients certainly ask for that and, um, you know, we navigate how that looks when we get to it. Uh Um, But we tend to push towards authentic, you know, true fans Mm -hmm. in every circumstance. And
1: what are some of those tactics like that are kind of, uh, uh, is it black hat? Is that what they call it? Black hat? Black hat, yeah. Yeah. Uh For context for any of your listeners,
0: um, this actually, do you mind if I explain this? Go for it, yeah. Yeah. So back in the Westerns, when they would shoot, you know... um, Movies, uh, they would have a simple way for the viewers to know whether the uh, cowboy was a good guy or the bad guy. And he would wear a white hat if he was a good guy, and he would wear a black hat if he was a bad guy. Uh, Eventually, they decided to make the uh, series more sophisticated by introducing grey characters, right? Um, And so, you know, I even wear rings, black and white, to remind me of the, the duality of this stuff. Um, but uh, this became very popular in hacker subculture. Black hat hackers would, you know, break systems in order to enrich themselves. White hat hackers might, you know, do penetration tests in order to see if the system was foolproof and then inform the organization itself. And a gray hat hacker might be someone who hunts for bounties and even holds information hostage with the intention of doing something good for the masses, for example, right? So there was actually a case recently of, I think, Spank Chain. It's a cryptocurrency project where the hacker hacked into um, one uh, of their sort of transactions, stole a bunch of Ethereum, um, and actually ended up returning it to the company after the hole was patched. He was kind of looking out for himself, but was also looking out for the general community. So it's kind of interesting. Um, now when we think about black hat tactics um, on the marketing side is, you know, at the end of the day, anything can be bought. I can buy YouTube views. I can get you a thousand listeners on this particular podcast. Like, you know, you want to have your Twitter not just explode in terms of followers, but also engagement. It's purchasable. Um, you want to buy PR, it can be done. Um, so the, with the crypto industry, is especially interesting because what people have an abundance of is money. What they have a scarcity of is time. And they're willing to uh, buy certain things or looking to buy certain things that are probably not in the best interest of their project long term. And yet, in this industry, hype is such a critical factor yeah. that sometimes people are forced to make these compromises. Yeah,
1: even if they have good intentions.
0: Absolutely, and, yeah. uh, and this is actually not dissimilar from the era of you know uh, pre dot com bubble, where you know ex IBM employees would come in with a suit and a suitcase, uh, present their pitch deck with nothing else behind them, raise you know millions and millions of dollars with a company with a dot com at the end and use that uh, hype that they built to, you know, frankly, um, splurge their way on launch parties and whatever thought was thought to be important at the time, right? You wouldn't be a legit company without a launch party back in that era, right? And um, we've moved past that in the startup industry, but it's still very much the case in the crypto industry. Thank goodness, I think 2018 was the kind of rise and fall of the hyped ICO. It is certainly much more closer to fundamentals and technology now.
1: And that's the most interesting thing when we get into these periods of really intense hype and intense expectations that are set Mm. immediately is how it's almost... It's very difficult for anyone to not be influenced by those things. It's, yeah. like it's very hard not to be influenced by people you're around and stuff like I'm that. Certainly that. Wow. How does, what, do you have anything to say about that? Or the things you do to kind of uh, separate yourself from, from trains of thought that might be sparkly and shiny but not have that much mm-hmm. substance?
0: Yeah. Um, I think the... I try to go into a project with a certain moral imperative. Mm-hmm. Um, which is to say, I want you guys to succeed. And then I tell them, here are my tools, right? There's no secrets about what strategies I'm using because again, back to transparency, I want them to know that I might be running a particular tactic one or the other, um, and to have accurate expectations of what the results of that tactic will be. If I'm buying members for somebody's Telegram group, they should have no expectation that those folks will be their super fans in the next few months, right? Um, so, I tend to be very purpose-oriented on the uh, joining of a certain project and to be a little more objectivist once joining. Um, because I recognize the sort of trend lines of the industry, what it takes to get a project off the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, if people should choose to go down you know, a black hat route or a white hat route, what we tend to do is mix. Um, and I say, you know, here's the spectrum. I'd like us to be above the 50th percentile of of the sort of quality of our users, right? If you have a thousand superfans, we can certainly do a lot more in the space below the 99th percentile there. But if you're just getting started, you have nobody who gives a crap about you. You're going to really need to create a strong narrative, a strong brand, a strong website, web presence um, to start producing content that credentials you as somebody who knows their stuff. Um, And it's a much harder slog, but you end up with a much richer, reward as with many things in life mm-hmm.
1: and that's an interesting thing I'm discovering about content because the original reason that I started getting into this was to create content so that people can find what I'm doing and, and now I'm enjoying this creation of content so much that it's actually just like I'm doing it just for the sake of doing mm-hmm. it which is really fun uh, yeah, what, you, mentioned strategy, you mentioned tactics, uh, sure. and I want to know the difference between what is tactics and what is strategy.
0: Sure, and let's even go a, a level of abstraction higher, philosophy, uh, right? Okay. I think any marketing uh, initiative, uh, you know, back to my sort of philosophical roots, um, so it's the philosophy of what is it that we are here to do, mm-hmm. right? And how does that thing that we are here to do translate across the entirety of the business, the product, the marketing, the team and culture, and so on, right? And so. Um, you know, for the marketing department, a lot of it is growth. And we want the growth of the community. Philosophically speaking, we are looking for a community that is of this archetype, um, of this level of engagement and of this size, right? So, philosophically speaking, great. Um, now, what are we going to do from a strategic perspective, right? And that goes a little bit lower. OK, we're going to pick these particular channels. That's where we're going to say our community will live. And crypto, it tends to be Telegram and Medium and maybe either Twitter or Instagram or Facebook or LinkedIn. One of those four is the third. Um, And we'll say, you know, we're going to think about a content strategy. We're going to think about a distribution strategy. Um, You know, in terms of podcast, you you are thinking about content. You have to think about, you know, I want to get these types of guests because that will be an integrity for me in terms of the kinds of value I want to provide my listeners. And you'll think about distribution from the perspective of, you know, where do those people live? Okay, I'm going to certainly get on all the places where I need to be. And then I'm going to do a little bit of extra elbow grease to get to the places where they may want to see me. Um, And then narrowing down, tactics, are the very essential distribution methods. So that might mean for me, paid acquisition. I might get into Facebook advertising. That might mean optimizing around your copy, your imagery, your targeting. Um, It might even mean going on a different platform. Maybe banner ads or Google AdWords are gonna be better for you, right? So it's very, very tactical, right? Even with content, right? You can do written content. You can do long-form content designed for SEO. You can do short-form content designed for an immediate splash and shareability. Super. Now, what if you did rich, rich media? Well, you were doing that right now. This is a podcast. It's long form. Yeah. What if you were to slice that long form podcast into multiple short form snippets for distribution across, you know, Instagram stories, yeah. right? Um, you have video. That's awesome because now you can slice and dice that into thirty second clips and two minute clips and five minute clips to be distributed across Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram, right? Um, what if you took some of the snippets that you just had people share that people loved? Turn those into Instagram posts with images with the text on top, right? So, you know, those are tactics, and we can jam on that all day. This is my, I nerd out about this stuff.
1: But I love the fact that it's coming from philosophy, then to uh, strategy, then to tactics. It's integrated with the top thing. Most people have no idea how to even jump at that. Uh, Thing. Sure. How do you kind of help your clients realize that that's important, mm-hmm. or do yeah. most of your clients already you realize that that's important?
0: I think most of the clients will uh, believe it is important, but not know what that means. Uh-huh. Um, I think that there can often be sort of a dissonance between the vision and the technology, and then the marketing, and everybody's you know got a horse pulling a different direction. Uh-huh. Um, it again goes back to a conversation not dissimilar to this one, uh-huh. right? It is you know what are you trying to accomplish? Why is that important? Why now? Why you? Um, And then I get to know those stories to the degree where I try to, this is all like, you know, the connection I have with my friends. Um, We try to, so to speak, fall in love with each other. And maybe in in the context of a business relationship, it would mean with their business, with their product, with their team. In a friendship, it would just mean having, you know, truly each other's back, Mm -hmm. right? The next step will be to try to understand each other. Okay, what are your values? What are you about? Um, What's important to you? What are your goals? Similar to a friendship, right? Uh, and then finally, we hold each other to integrity. And that is the feeling of getting to such a level of comfort and transparency with each other that I can tell them if they are uh, transgressing their own stated values. Or I can feel like I can tell them if the outcomes that they're going to get from a particular strategy that will give them quick hits and wins now will, sac- will sacrifice them and cost them this in the future. I uh, won't name any names, but um, you know I had a a prospective client come to me and ask me can we buy google reviews mm-hmm. most certainly you could <laughs> most certainly you could do that um but there are there's a myriad reasons why you might want not to yeah. um and at the end of the day you may find yourself with some quick wins now but the day that you're big enough for google to give a crap about you mm-hmm. and you have that on your record mm-hmm. you stand to really shoot yourself on the foot and you lose the whole channel
1: mm-hmm. and this is the interesting thing that- Been researching it. Also, is that like so? Instagram, you buy followers. Instagram won't tell you, but they might. I forget the actual term for it, but they might shadow ban you. Yeah, that's yes. Shadow ban ban you.
0: They will uh, basically uh, handicap your ability to show up organically in the Uh feed. Yeah. That's kind of crap. But there's so many ways to ethically grow a Instagram following, right? And again, let's think about just that platform, right? There's a black hat. Buy Instagram followers. Buy Instagram likes. Buy Instagram comments. You can do all those things. And if you do them in concert, it actually looks a lot better than if you just buy the followers. Mm-hmm. Interesting thought. Mm-hmm. Um, In the gray hat way, you can actually join what are called engagement pods, right? Communities of people whose intention is to grow their Instagram followings. And they do that by you know just liking each other's photos, commenting to each other's photos. Mm -hmm. They help each other pick the right hashtags. Mm -hmm. And by engaging with each other's content immediately when it gets posted, they boost themselves in the algorithm and their organic reach skyrockets. Mm -hmm. But that is okay under um, Instagram's TOS, although they may have updated that. Uh, and finally, the white hat is you're just doing your best. Yeah. Produce great content, produce, distribute as best as you can, um, and uh, to do that consistently.
1: Is it still possible to grow on Instagram in that, in that uh, third category?
0: Certainly. So, so, yeah. Certainly. Again, it's uh, like, with any, like with any platform, it is going to be harder now because of saturation. Mm-hmm. Um, the same goes for Medium. The same goes for LinkedIn. But I think that there are still a number of platforms where, you know, certain ways of utilizing them is still um um undervalued you can still get in there i think you know if you were to look at influencers right now right it's such a poorly understood craft um that it's actually um you know the majority of folks won't touch it because they're not sure what kind of results they're going to get it was the same way with facebook ads just a few years ago most people wouldn't touch it because what's this whole facebook thing uh and yeah and there's no way of doing this right the ui is clunky Right, same deal. If you want outsized results, you're going to have to do the things that others won't, um, which means testing things, with influencers, maybe you know, throwing money away. But do that five times. The sixth time works, right? Then you found something that works for you. It's not for everybody, but um, you know, I think there's certainly platforms um, that would help. And influencers, I would say, are also in this sort of third category. If you can find a way to get outsized returns by partnering with an influencer, even paying them for a mention. Mm-hmm. Uh, a tag or something like that on uh, Instagram, you can certainly get further than you would on your own.
1: Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Okay, well, so we came here to talk about creativity and stress. and That's amazing. This is so interesting yeah. uh, and I want to kind of segue to that. Uh, what, is, what is your definition of stress?
0: I would say uh, when noise overtakes signal. Interesting. And, um, just think about your mind, right? Think about what you might do during meditation. You try to cleanse your mind of noise, and even of signal, just to find it, yourself in a blank space. And when you come back from meditation, you might find that the sense of signal, which is thinking about the critical path for whatever, for a relationship, for a business uh, outcome, um, is closer to you than before. Um, but you know, certainly what happens to me four days, literally it's like, it's like the four day mark of missed meditations. So if I miss four days in a row, uh, my brain is so noisy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I find myself pulled by these little nagging feelings. Um, I have a hard time juggling my responsibilities. Mm-hmm. Um, I overcommit with best intentions and then find myself crushed between my schedule. Um, and so, uh, all that is noise, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that shows up in, in many ways, but I think it is um, certainly that across across the spectrum, noise versus signal. And what is the ratio thereof?
1: And it seems like it's an aspect of mind-created crea- mind stress as well, yes. so that it's something that's not necessarily just an input, but it's something yeah. that our mind takes from that yes. input and creates this output of unwanted, yes. unnecessary uh, suffering.
0: Yeah, it's a reaction to your circumstances. Uh-huh. In every circumstance, yeah. it is a reaction. right? Um, And I think the thing that you can do to avoid stress is to have the integrity to know what to say no to and to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, And when I don't have a sense of groundedness, I have less courage to say no to things and also have a worse sense of knowing what to say no to. Mm -hmm. Um, And and, how to
1: say no overcoming to it as well.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's certainly the case. I think that's something that was much greater struggle earlier in my life, Uh, you know, people-pleasing tendencies that I picked up I think from my childhood uh, definitely made that hard in the beginning but I've had enough practice now to, to, to make that easier um, but how is certainly the case I think you know how do you say no compassionately or how do you say no to the to the, to the offer but yes to the person right uh, there was a wonderful uh, workshop at X um, extremely special event called One Salon uh, that we have certainly spent some time at. Um, It was about enthusiastic consent. And we were training how to say no. Uh, And uh, that was such an important class for me because it showed me not just the what but the how. And one of, the, one of the, my favorites, I think it was a little cheeky, a little cheesy, but it actually is, is such an important thing to internalize was, um, you know, you were partnered up with a friend and that friend was asking you out for a coffee um, and you were um, supposed to say no. And you had a few choices of how you could do it. One of my favorite ones was, I'm a no to that, but a yes to you. <laughs> and it's, it's again, it's a cheeky thing, but um, what it stands for is actually pretty special. You can say yes to the person, but no to that thing. And you can always reschedule or maybe, you know, the way you prioritize that relationship is different from each side. But that doesn't mean you're an outright no to a person. It just means you're able to inform them of what your expectations are going into this thing and, and kind of align from there. And I will say this has been a practice for me. This is not something I've mastered at all, but um, it is something I'm much more leaning into and trying to be less attached to the outcomes of a friendship or relationship and so on. It's hard.
1: So, have got stress covered, now what is creativity to? Oh, sure. Oof. beautiful
0: question. Um, you know, uh, as of March, uh, that word has been uh, a lot more important to me. Uh, I think it is an expression of one's integrity, in fact. Um, but uh, yeah, creativity is interesting. It feels to me like the act of putting stuff into the world for other people to experience. And um, for those things that you create to have an impact on their, you know, rational or emotional brains, right? Um, and it is this feeling of like I think it was like channeling something greater than yourself into into your time here in this world, right? I think it is so natural for us to consume, um, but there's there's almost a sanctity I would say. I can, we can go down this rabbit hole for sure, but there's a certain sacredness to creating. Um, because it is, it is like the very act of being human, right? We, we are perceiving machines and we are creating machines, uh-huh. right? We make meaning and we also create things that make meaning for others, right? Uh-huh. So, so I would say creativity is the latter half of that.
1: Uh-huh. And I, you, said, you said consuming is natural, but I, I'm not sure you yeah. mentioned the way that I heard it, but, sure. but uh, I think crea- creat- creativity is natural, but we have, uh, we have clamped it down yes. to the point where we're so, consuming all the time. Yes. For various reasons, yeah. we don't have to get into those. But but we're we're all capable of creation. We're all yes. capable of this creative inspiration. Um, mm. And more and more about it is coming and kind of stripping off the layers that are preventing us from being. being I motivated.
0: entirely agree. Yeah, I think the hardest part about creating is that um, it just is actually hard. Yeah. You have to battle with yourself. Uh-huh. About so many things, about the worthiness of the act of creation, about the time that it takes to do the thing, about realizing that you won't be good at the beginning and you'll improve over time. About finding your your medium, right? There's, it's it's a certainly a complicated, um, just you know, space to inhabit. Um, but as you get warmed up, you know, it's, it's a special thing. I think for me, it's uh, I've spent a lot of time writing, and I, I'm competent in writing. But uh, I, I make this joke. Too bad it's true. Um, I I don't love writing I love having written
1: yeah yeah, yeah. 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 And it's, it's, totally, it's, it's totally true like yeah. the, the, especially when you're first starting out for me it's the all the negative self talk about writing and, yeah. and what I'm creating is just such a torture to get through sure. um, what are the techniques that you use in your life or frameworks that you use in your life to make sure that you're being your most creative self or kind of Working productively yeah. or effectively sure. with
0: that creativity. Sure. I think something that, uh, going back to sort of this March time, um, that's kind of around the time when I realized like there's some sort of spiritual component to this um, that is, you know, existential to what it means to be human. Uh, up until that point, I sort of romanticized writing as a thing that would be useful as a thing that would, you know, provide utility to others. It's a very utilitarian way of looking at it. Um, But now I see it as something that is truly expressive of like, why are we here, right? So there's a little bit of um, almost sanctity to it that uh, has made me have a higher urge to do it. Um, And then, you know, my rational brain has certain tactics, right? Uh, Accountability buddies are great. So there are two friends with whom I check in um, on a regular basis to see how we're progressing in our writing uh, ambitions. Um, one on the more sort of the personal side of writing, and the other one more so the professional side. Mm-hmm. Um, I also find that it is good to uh, have a list of the pieces you would like to create. Mm-hmm. And so for me it's a little bit easier when I don't have to start from scratch, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, I spend time up front to think about what I want to write about. And think about how it fits into one another, right? And then I might take another day to outline a piece or two. Uh, And then it's so much easier to get in there and write that piece and also gives me a little bit more of a buffet to choose from Do I want to spend time thinking about what i want to write today? Do I want to spend time thinking about how I want to write it today? Do I want to spend time creating a first draft of the thing that I'm intending to write? Or do I want to edit something I've written in the past, right? Um, The act of creating in that way is, you know, something that becomes a little more fluid It's not that I have to go through the entire process for a single piece at a time It's that I get to choose what energy I've got to give today um, and then I think the last bit is carving out time. Mm-hmm. Um, it is to say, you know, from this time to that time, this is my writing time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that means phone off. That means, um, you know, quiet time. That means a nice space. It means a cup of coffee. It means taking care of all the little things I need to do that I would allow myself to get distracted by and uh, sitting down and just getting at it.
1: Mm-hmm. So now we have got creativity covered, we have got stress covered. Now with the connection between? Mm. Um, How stress play a role in creativity? Yeah,
0: yeah. It's interesting because it, I think it plays uh, it's a double-edged sword. Uh-huh. It is both a, um, a force that is conducive and a force that is distractive against creativity. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say that uh, you know, when you think about uh, a way that it is distractive, I think about um, all the things that I might think to prioritize ahead of creating at a given moment, right? Things that I might need you for clients, uh, you know, commitments I've made to my friends, um, you know, consuming content uh, as a means of inspiration, even making my coffee, right? Um, I, there are these little stressful um, pings here and there that will say, you know, you haven't done this yet, or this is more important, or you, you you've promised this to somebody, um, and so that certainly serves to add noise to sort of my my creative act. Um, but on the other side. Stress is also one of these things that says to me, um, I need to do this. Otherwise, um, you know, I am failing to sort of live up to what I'm here for. Um, and this is interesting because it keeps coming up for me sometimes. You know, um, I'd say I, w- I would say that at this point, I have made a little bit more peace than I anticipated with the idea of dying. Mm-hmm. Right, I'm not necessarily so afraid of the concept. You know, I, I have had a good run. Is how I, is how I usually talk about it. But then, if asked, like, what would I do with the last week or two of my life? Um, you know, certainly spending time with friends and, and colleagues and stuff like that is is important. But uh, I wouldn't spend time traveling. I wouldn't spend time, you know, going on adventures. I would like to actually spend that time writing down some of my thoughts and experiences. Right, and so it's almost like. It's it's a funny way to think about it. The act of creating makes me more at peace with death, right? There's this memento morti kind of feeling of, you know, remember that we're going to die and I think about what it is that I want to leave behind. And I think um, I've had a privilege of being able to have a few great ideas through the influence of my friends and experiences I've had that I think are worth sharing. Right? They could be useful shortcuts to, to people's growth if, if I were to share them with the world. Um, and it seems like I am you know, perhaps not realizing my full purpose by not doing the act of creating those things and sharing them with others. Um, and it's a good way to think about it if, you know, as a listener, you might think about what would I write about? Well, write about whatever it is your friends keep asking you about, or write about whatever makes you angry, or write about something that you uh, feel nagged hasn't existed yet. Right? And so for me, that, each of those brings up a, a list of things that I could write about. Um, and certainly a few of them feel like, well, that's a whole rabbit hole. We can you know, build up from that one. And if I start with one piece, I'm kind of obligated to do the others. Um, so there's, this almost, there's, a, there's almost a web of pieces I'd like to create. But um, the stress is both urging me to do it and stopping me. Uh-huh. It's tough.
1: What are your main sources of joy in your life?
0: That's ah, a phenomenal question. Holy cow. So, um, you know, I've kind of talked very loosely about my values, just on the, on the sort of, you know, what am I focused on these days? Um, I would say uh, the values are um, going a little higher. Is, uh, I would say that, you know, sort of uh, man and woman's role in life is to sort of find what happiness means to them and, and to live in integrity with it. Um, and, you know, I like to say happiness, not with a lowercase h, like a happy day to day, but a happiness with a capital H where you can look proudly on your life. Um, and so what makes me happy is about five things right now. Uh, and each of those break out in interesting ways, I suppose. But um, I would say the first is uh, adventure. I love to experience the world and to help others sort of experience it as well. Um, it is sort of personal growth, which is both of the body and the mind. So I'm extremely enthusiastic about diet and fitness. we were talking about that before we got in here, about sort of ways we are sort of biohacking ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and also very enthusiastic about sort of improving my mind. And that means, you know, feeding it information to become more knowledgeable reading and stuff like that been really into stoic philosophy lately mm-hmm. um and also read the four agreements for the first time mm-hmm. a book um i would say it also comes from uh sort of being more wise which is sort of working on myself mm-hmm. it's putting in internal work to do that and then also finding myself sort of more calm mm-hmm. you know that's important to me too mm-hmm. so um you know, past the personal growth aspect is the sense of connection, right? What does that really mean? Well, I think it means um, having nourishing relationships with friends, partners, and uh, family. Mm -hmm. And what is a nourishing relationship, I would say, is back to that thought of loving each other, understanding each other, and keeping each other in integrity. Mm -hmm. Um, So trying to build more of those connections, and even redefining old connections, like with my mom, uh, to fit into that framework is so critical. Mm Um, You know, I think the relationship that she and I have is truly special. We've changed from, you know, mother and son to to partners in crime and each other's growth. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's been extremely nourishing to me lately. Uh, And then moving a step up, I feel like I need to serve a sense of purpose while I'm here. Mm -hmm. And for the longest time, my purpose was twofold. It was extremely rationally grounded, um, which was to reduce suffering or to, um, shall we say, contribute to progress. Right. Um, and I think that those were driven by my rational brain. Over time I sort of in the last two or three years just being in the Bay Area, surprise surprise, I became a little bit more emotive um, and I think I added to that list the idea of creating things of beauty that will affect others, which is sort of where this idea of writing comes from or you know creating events or experiences for people. Uh, and the fourth sort of purpose as of late has been to find my values and to live them out in my life, work and relationships. Uh, and, and that is uh, the last value, integrity, which, is, um, which goes back to a lot of the previous values and, you know, working on them, uh, holding myself to account to them, uh, and, and in living in that day to day. So any of those things make me extremely happy. Interesting. And all, in, all of them together are really good, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: So you mentioned something about, particularly in the Bay Area, you've had this growth of emotive uh, capability or awareness. Um, yes. And it's something very interesting that's happening here, but if you go and travel around to the rest of the world, you might find it in other urban areas, but it's a small group, yes. whereas here it's like the overwhelming like True. kind of you know thing. Can you talk more about it, because you just recently went traveling to Europe, right?
0: Uh, I will be going to travel to Europe, but I also have gotten back okay. to yeah. traveling. Europe. Yeah,
1: so uh, what have you noticed from your travels about the difference between the Bay Area and how unique the Bay Area is compared to other places, yeah. and both
0: that have been Sure, sure. Um, I think that there's something going on here. Yeah. You know, um, it was interesting because when I first came to the Bay Area, I was here on a rational quest. There's a group here called the Effective Altruists. It's also the hub of the Rationality community, um, and I was seeking to answer that purpose question: What is what is it that I should be doing right now with my life? You know, I had got I had kind of moved up my own Maslow's hierarchy. I had ventured for a long time. I had personal growth. I had found some friends, but I was feeling a little bit like I was floating without or without a um, direction. So I came here on a rational quest, and and I had a lot of these rational conversations. Found myself rather dissonant from the people with whom I was communicating, um, and uh, I actually ended up staying in the Bay Area not because of those conversations, and not because of some work opportunity, but because of the conversations I was having that were the inverse of that. They were they were vulnerable and open and. People felt like they were they were pressing onto something, you know, like a knot, emotional knot. And I wasn't getting that anywhere else. It's a courageous thing to do that. Um, not a lot of people will lean into letting you know how you could improve or asking you a question that would, you know, break down both your walls or that would make them seem weaker in some ways. right? I certainly wouldn't be used to that in New York. That was where I was coming from. And so what is it that is happening here? Um, I think this is maybe a broad brush with which to paint, Um, but I think that there is um, something going on in terms of this is a place where I would say feminine energy is well manifested. And I would say the East Coast, just as a comparison point, is a place where masculine energy is manifested, right? Um, We can kind of divvy up what each of those means a little bit, but I would say it is usually the case that in most of the world, it is the masculine energy that's dominant. If you look at uh, the Hofstede model, so sort of cultural comparison model um, across cultures, you know, I spent a bunch of time in China and in Europe and uh, in parts of Asia. And it is generally the case that sort of it is a masculine dominated environment with uh, all the pros and cons that that comes with. So it might include ambition and individualism um, and, um, you know, boldness, but it also comes at the cost of cohesion and empathy and, uh, you know, collaboration. But if you think of the Bay Area, I mean, this place, even from the the business side, it was always built in collaboration, open innovation, right? That's what Silicon Valley is as its claim to fame. Um, You think about some of the hippie movements here that have happened, um, you know, from the rise of the Grateful Dead to, you know, the Summer of Love to, uh, you know, the acid trials. Um, People here kind of woke up to the idea that they didn't really have to live in some some sort of, you know, um, consensus reality dominated by ladder climbing. Um, and it's never changed uh, and so I think people here are in better tune with what it is that they need versus what they uh, so sort of think they should need um, I think that people here are also a little bit more, I think this is a global phenomenon of moving towards this but I think people here are a little bit more intrinsically motivated of what it is they're going after versus extrinsically motivated which I think would say is another sort of archetypal uh, masculine phenomenon of sort of status seeking. Um, and uh, there's also been just more cultural awakening that has happened here and even, even out of the protest movements in Berkeley right social justice has been a huge component of living in the Bay Area Um, So, through sort of the technological innovation, through the social justice movements, through the psychedelic movements and art movements that have happened here, it's like, we've opened a box here that we cannot close back up, and um, And it's it's a special place. Exactly that. Yeah, even with Burning Man. Burning Man is a a magnificent cultural exporter of the values of, um, I don't want to say the Bay Area, because it's really sort of, it's it's humanistic values, but... um, if there is a place where you can get a taste of Silicon Valley, um, and not from the tech side, but just from the side of um, culture here, t- exactly, human human sort of progress, um, that might be a way for, for any, any listener to just get like a dose, uh-huh. get really dosed by. Well,
1: and now it's spreading so, because people come from all over the world to go Burning and they experience this and they go back to their other places. And it's also exporting to certain cultural levels around the world through nomads. Yes, Bali. certainly. Now, Bali has all the same kind of events that you can find here mm, in San Francisco. I love it. And then I have a friend who's Romanian, I yes. met her in Romania, and then she went to Bali and she had a awakening there, and then his, his, went back to Romania and is now t- leading the same type of events in Romania, so it's like kind of like trickling down into all these urban areas yes. around the world in this weird combination of digital nomads and like tech YouTube videos. Mm, so it's, mm. it's, it's very strange. Certainly that. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Uh, it's, that's a, certainly an interesting phenomenon. And I, I lived out of a backpack for years at a time. I did the Bali thing. I love Bali. I plan to go back there. It's a wonderful place to hunker down and work, but also to do that in an environment that is not unlike Silicon Valley. Um, but uh, the cultural movement of, you know, a lot of things that we talked about, but also the sort of geographic movement of this stuff is really interesting. And so you're right. You can now go to a certain places where you would never expect to find these sort of cultural archetypes. And find them in pockets mm-hmm. um, and so that's already special mm-hmm. uh, some of these pockets are growing mm-hmm. too and, and they are producing events and hangouts and you know even doing something like a potluck is a good way to wake a few folks up um, even just with a single session uh, we did this in New York uh, two weekends ago you know it was the kind of get-together where people realized oh like we got through the what do you do part really fast here and then we dove in some real stuff yeah. um, people were debugging each other's you know limiting beliefs on the patio you know um so even the idea of like what that looks like being being shown that that's something that is open to them and possible versus something that they might see on tv or a tony robbins event or something right Is super interesting that's right interesting so we
1: don't want to take too much more of your time we've got about five minutes left uh i want to talk about books and you've. One book in particular, uh, *The War of Art*, you
0: mentioned, mm-hmm. uh, which I've read, it, but I want to yeah. read. What is the main takeaway you got from that book? Yeah, um, that our act of creating um, is moderated strictly by the resistance we have to doing it. Okay. Um, the battle is not with, you know, the page or with the, your reputation or with your with your worthiness. It's within a little voice within you that will use every tool it has even your idea of being more calm or meditating like i mean it will use every tool at its disposal to disincentivize you from producing um and this is interesting because you know as you may for example become a a more grounded person uh or a person with a better community or a person who is better read you actually um, you know you again sharpen both edges of the sword um, So you may now have a better um, ability to link what you're trying to say to great thinkers Or you may have friends who hold you to account or you may have You know a little bit more groundedness with which to reduce the noise so you can get to writing But just as that that same voice will say don't you need to meditate before you do this piece? or maybe like take a little break here just to collect your ideas yeah. or um, you know what if your friends had a chance to edit this, right? Wouldn't it be a little bit better? Or, um, you know, with something like uh, having read those books, you might now trigger a sense of not enoughness around your, uh, you know, references you're making or what have you, just because now you know more about what you don't know, right? So. Um, it is there's a certain voice, um, perhaps a super ego in classic parlance, but uh, the the writer actually calls it the resistance um, that is within us all, and it is a trickery uh, that uh, it takes effort and consistency to fight. Um, and so there's a war within us that sort of rages, uh, not unlike the uh, you know the the supposition of the artist of the the four agreements. Um, which is around sort of our battle with the forces that might sway us away from our integrity. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's many of these books will um, call the same thing different names, mm-hmm. um, but at the end of the day, whether you're reading stoicism or you know uh, Mayan philosophy or you know uh, modern day self improvement, mm-hmm. um, there is some force within us that uses every tool at its disposal to keep us lazy and satisfied. Mm-hmm. Um, And uh, the act of creating is to beat it back.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that sounds really similar to uh, Islamic uh, philosophy, which Mm. uh, talks about jihad. And Mm. jihad not in the sense of external struggle against another power, but internal struggle Mm. against your own kind of baser desires Mm -hmm. to be more content, be more comfortable as opposed to create. Really interesting. What book are
0: you reading right now? Uh, I just finished uh, the Four Agreements that we talked about, and I'm now f- reading the The Art of Living okay. um, by Epictetus, uh-huh. uh, who was a teacher to Marcus Aurelius. Oh, um, he was a philosopher, one of the first sort of, I would argue, great Stoics. Okay. Um, and uh, again, the irony of it is, the more philosophy you read, the more it all starts to sound the same. Yeah. Um, there are some wonderful things that remind me of the four arguments of not taking things personally, of you know being impeccable with your word. Um, but uh, you know, I've been a big fan of stoicism for a long time. I've kind of gone through a weird philosophical journey of originally getting into philosophy through a video game. Mm. Mm. Uh, Planescape Torment was the name of it, if anyone's back in the day. But uh, I ended up using philosophy first. Um, um, rather selfishly to argue with my parents, I was reading, you know, a lot of the objectivist philosophers, and, and you know, from from Marx to Ayn Rand to um, you know Nietzsche. I was using it to argue with my parents, uh, and then eventually got a little bit more into um, you know uh, Western self improvement. You know, um, how to win friends and influence people, or how to think and grow rich, and things like that. Um, and then sort of made my way down to the Eastern philosophy track. Um, and whether it was like Tata Ching or Buddhism, really fell in love with that. Ended up spending a bunch of time in China to do it. Um, now I would say uh, I'm spending a lot of time on sort of the, the ancient Western philosophers. So Aristotle, the Stoics, um, and just seeing what's in there. And I think my greatest ambition would be to figure out what kind of philosophy that I should abide by that would integrate both the best of the East and the West. Because I think neither of the two are quite right for everybody, Mm -hmm. but I think there's some sort of blend with the yin and the yang, the the good and the evil, the black and the white, the Mm -hmm. sort of um, objective sort of Western philosophy and the sort of more uh, nuanced sort of gray area Mm -hmm. uh, of Eastern philosophy Mm -hmm. that uh, could be an opening. uh, Another thing
1: I've been thinking about in in that debate is that... What we have access to right now is always a filter through our perceptions particularly the big perception shift of globalization that changes all of our ability mm-hmm. to perceive things based on this kind of unifying um, trend yeah. and, and uh, so we always filter these books through our own kind of uh, senses and also we are com- we are confronted with a set of challenges we would face today that are completely unlike mm-hmm. any, anything sure. that any of these people have written past yeah. in the past so i find that they talk a lot about this in yoga is and yogis in particular, like is that you can get fifty percent of your wisdom from scripture and you get fifty percent of your wisdom through experience. Uh, not from yes. experience but uh, kind of download from yeah. in your meditation practice yeah. like where it's just like where you think about this idea and all of a sudden like, oh whoa, that okay, or that's the that's the, the answer to this question, but that's the, the kind
0: I certainly agree. Yeah, I think that there's uh, we have we've gotten pretty well nuanced on our external world. Mm-hmm. We are able to call the senses with which we interact with reality. You know, our sense of touch, our sense mm-hmm. of sight, our sense of taste. Um, and yet, it seems to me like we have not yet gotten very good at articulating what it is that our internal senses of the same type. Right? What is it that? What are the? What are the? What is the sense of touch for? inside experience what is a sense of sight for inside experience right i think over time as we kind of talked about what are the developments that i've had in the bay area you know you start as an experiential this is good this is bad then you then in my case it was oh, i became hyper rational and like this is well optimized mm-hmm. and then it became a little bit more emotional so this feels right or this feels good um, and then it was only recently that I think the, the idea of integrity, in a in mm-hmm. sort of intuitive sense, made me feel like this is this is this is good with a capital G, or mm-hmm. this is this is an integrity. This is uh, the right way to do things. Yeah. I would say I'm still trying to understand what sort of a spiritual understanding mm-hmm. of my inter- internal internal uh, workings looks like, but I think uh, this is a good place to find it. Yeah. <laughs> Certainly. Cool.
1: Thank you so much for coming. pleasure been mine. Yeah, Thank you for having me. No. Pleasure.